Hello and a big warm welcome to you to the Aware Parenting and Natural Learning Podcast with Marion Rose and Joss Golden. We are really passionate about practicing aware parenting and natural learning together and would love to offer you information and inspiration to support you if you feel called to practice these in your family too. Hello and a big warm welcome to you. My name is Marion Rose. And my name is Joss Golden. Today we're talking about something that's so really pivotal to the whole of natural learning, which is the history of schooling. And I am so excited to be talking about this today together, Joss. Yeah, me too. So we thought we'd start off by sharing a little bit about our understanding of this, because what I think we're going to be talking about somewhat is about cultural conditioning in terms of school. And we're going to be referring a lot to a most amazing article by Peter Gray, which is in the Psychology Today magazine, and we'll share the link in the show notes. And I would love to share my journey with this is that I, when I first read this, it was one of those moments of really a whole shift of paradigm of like, oh my gosh, rather than from schools are here because there's been a lot of research into them and this is the most helpful way for children to learn. And as he talks about, there's like a really logical or scientific reason for having them. And instead learning from him that actually they're just really the product of history the more we understand the history of them, the more that supports us to to see what's really going on in schools and I think can really inspire us to make different choices. And I remember for me, it just was like really such a huge paradigm shift in a way that really helped me feel even more confident about natural learning. Mm. Yes, me too. And, and I love how he starts this article by talking about the fact that everywhere in the world, people go to school and and in most countries in the western world it is compulsory to go to school and that so many places in the world schools are structured in the same way and that there's a lot of money and thought and time and effort that goes into organizing our schools and lots of expense and time to work out how schools are going to be And so therefore, you would think that there must be a really strong scientific reason based on clear scientific research that this is the best way. And yet, as you said, it is much more about our history and how we have evolved in in our culture that determines how schools are than about any scientific benefit that has been shown uh, as a result of children learning in these ways. Uh, it's just such a profound realization. It is so profound, isn't it? To go, it's almost like I, my experience of these the deconditioning process over and over again. It's it's almost like this whole veil being the veil being lifted of like, oh my god, how could I? Yeah, I totally believed this thing, and now I see it all to be fiction, it all to be really completely not true at all. Like, it isn't schools aren't the most helpful thing for for many, 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 many children. Yeah. And certainly this idea that children need to go go to school in order to to grow up to be competent adults who can contribute to society. And, And I just see that as being so untrue and yet so deeply conditioned into so many of us in our culture. So it's a really big moment when you realize these things and when you see the conditioning that's going on and how pervasive it is and what it's really based on. 
Yes, I was thinking, do you remember back in the day, people used to go, um, reporters going around um, the high street. <laughs> I'm thinking when I lived in England, they'd go around the high street and ask people questions. And I was thinking, if you did that now still, and you ask them, you know, what do you think of school? And most, or, or do you think school is necessary for children? And I would imagine that still probably the majority, particularly of older people and maybe younger people and teenagers might say something different. I imagine the most adults would say, yes, absolutely. Yes, probably 97%. I'm making a guess there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's still this belief that it, even if they might have had a terrible experience, even if they see terrible things happening in schools, there's still this belief that actually the the system itself, the paradigm is right. Yes, there may be, you know, maybe we need to change things up a bit or modernize things, but actually the school's an inherent part of being a human being. That's really you know, what we're sold. Mm. Yes. And and that was what I thought too. I mean, I remember the day before my uh, son went to kindy and he was going to this lovely little kindy that was around the corner from us and it had you know it was a community school and all of those things and I remember the night before standing at the bottom of the bed and watching him asleep and just being so devastated that he was going to be going to school so devastated that we were going to be separated and again I'd had a hideous experience at school and hated it and yet in spite of both of those two things I just presumed that it was it was the right thing to do to send him to school because that's what people did. That's what everybody does. And I think that's true for so many parents and particularly parents who are coming from this aware parenting perspective who've had all this closeness and this deep valuing of connection and attachment and play and listening to feelings and all of those beautiful things about aware parenting. And yet we still think that separating from our children and sending them away for hours a day it is the right thing to do because that is what it, our society does. So it's it's a really big moment when when you realise that perhaps that's not the case. And then once you see that, you, it's very quick to become so clear that actually not only it's not perhaps it's it's probably almost certainly not the case. Yeah, like an unraveling jumper or something, isn't it? It's like you un, unpull a thread and then suddenly just you could just it, it's so effortless the way it starts to to pull away and to go mm. really no, and I think it it speaks to the effectiveness of the conditioning that we experience in school that even if many of us do have really painful experiences that we we still come out of it most of us still believing that it's the thing to do. It's very clever. The, the disconnected domination culture and the conditioning is so clever, isn't it? It is so clever. And I was thinking this morning as well, when I was thinking about us having a conversation about this, that so often when we think about the things that are challenging for us as adults and, and where that comes from in our lives. We're focused on our, our family of origin and things that are going on in our families with our parents, which of course is deeply significant in terms of who we are and how we turn out to be. But actually in terms of so much about who we are and how we turn out to be, it, it comes from our experiences in school. And so it is so clever. It's such a clever system because it has a profound impact on who we become. Yes. And, yeah. and really, to me, it speaks to, I like to talk a lot about uh, how culture is designed to be passed on. Whatever we think or feel in relation to it, it's designed that by the time we become adults and we have children ourselves, that we do the same thing that was done to us. So it's designed to be hard to change that. So I think that's really important to remember that when we do have these veil lifting moments or, you know, for however long we haven't seen things that we then do see to be really compassionate with ourselves because we're designed to keep on believing these things. That's mm. how it's designed to work. 
Yes, and it often takes really profound and amazing lessons and experiences to to be willing to actually explore the fact that it might not be the case or or just amazing lessons and and signs from the universe I'd love to share my story about how we came to homeschooling and as you you know the story Marion but it was Peter Gray whose article about history of schooling we're talking about today it was Peter Gray's book free to learn that I found in a a box of books that were for sale at the school that my son was at <laughs> that I took as the the final sign because I've been thinking about homeschooling for a while. And then I found Peter Gray's amazing book and I took it home and I read it and I just thought it was such an incredible book. And the fact that I'd found it in, in the school sale was like a really amazing lesson from life. And yeah, that that was just such a profound moment for us. And that just changed everything. And then from then on, I took him out of school and my daughter never went to school and I've never looked back. But it was so interesting that I found his book at school. And that's what gave me the confidence to finally take that step that I've been wanting to take for such a long time. Such a beautiful message, isn't it? I think, I think life or the universe has such a sense of humor. It's like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we'll make it really obvious for you. Look at this funny thing. We're going to find it right in the school. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. I would like to really, again, acknowledge Peter Graham. Like, when I, every time I read through this article, and I read it through about three times before this particular conversation, but I have returned to it many times over the years, every single time I think, oh my gosh, thank you so much. You basically summarized the history of education back from hunter gatherer times to the present day in like a really readable, fascinating article. And I uh, copied and pasted notes for us to share. And I, there were so many things, I, you know, there were about 20, 30, 40 things I could literally quote because I think they're so, mm. you know, quote, yumminess is wonderful. Yes. <laughs> that isn't a sentence, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I had exactly the same experience. I reread it yesterday. I've read it many times before, reread it yesterday and wrote out lots of different notes of things I wanted to say. I mean, I would love to read a whole a whole book on this subject. And it was interesting because I actually went on and did a little Google search on on other things around the history of schooling and why why we have schools. Um, but there really isn't very much else oh, out there. Really? So I would love I would love to read. I'd love him to write more about this. Yeah, yeah, I love that you're saying that and thinking, oh, be, yeah, great to uh, I. I think I've friends with him on Facebook, but yeah, I'm not really sure about what he's doing now and would love to, to mm. tap in more again. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I'm sure this is something that we will write about to ourselves, won't we? To to bring even more clarity and detail to this yes. aspect. Because I think we could bring in all the elements of aware parenting mm-hmm. as well and the history that relate to those in terms of the three aspects attachment style parenting the non-punitive discipline and the the preventing stress and trauma and the understanding of how children naturally heal and supporting that process and i think he really focuses a lot on he talks about willfulness in inverted commas and so we would really be seeing that a lot in terms of that non-punitive discipline element of aware parenting that i think he really does focus a lot on that doesn't he in terms of we could call it the oppression of children and, and the history of the oppression of children through um, that ends up with school. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, as you were just talking about the three aspects of aware parenting, I, it really made me think about the power again of the DDC to deliberately put our children in environments where they are disconnected from these natural ways of being in family, where their needs for attachment were met, where they weren't punished or rewarded, where they were supported to be removed from stress as much as possible and to heal from stress using their own powerful healing mechanisms. So again, that's part of that indoctrination and control and to to change children and how they how they are, how they behave and how connected they are in their families. Yes. History of schooling really is the opposite of the, those three aspects of parenting, isn't it? Because basically it's based on really separating children from their parents at, at as young age as possible and it becomes younger and younger and younger as years go on and the hours become longer and then there's homework as well. So in terms of attachment style parenting, it really goes against, it, well, it makes that harder terms of non-punitive disciplines we talked about it's all about <laughs> so much even you know even schools that would probably see themselves as quite progressive I don't know if that's the word it's still punishment and shame even subtly is is often really common but I, you know I've seen um, schools where there's a lot of talk about how lovely it is and yet still there is this shaming subtle shaming subtle punishment like coercion all of those kinds of things and then in terms of the the prevention of stress and trauma, as we've talked about in other episodes, it's very, very common for many children to experience many experiences every day of many traumas and stressful experiences. And then many schools don't have the setup, yet alone the understanding to support the, the healing of that through attachment play and crying and raging. So it really... I also want to acknowledge anyone who's listening as well who practices aware parenting, who's sending their children to school. And we've talked before about many reasons and, and much compassion for people who's, who are in that position because the DDC makes it hard for us to not send our children to school and also have enough money to do to live and all the other things. Oh, where was I going with that? You'll know where I was going. <laughs> Just about compassion. Oh, to make it people. harder. Yes, that actually I think it really makes it a lot harder for parents because you need to work harder to recreate that connection again at the end of a school day. Children are going to have experiences of punishment, shaming, those kinds of things that they're going to need to heal from. And they are going to experience these stresses and traumas that then you're going to need to help them heal from. So they're going to have more accumulated feelings and those are going to show up. So just really want to acknowledge anyone practicing aware parenting and how if your child is going to school, you know, you're you're doing more to to support your child to feel connected and relaxed again in their bodies. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And just again about acknowledging the fact that we are all, most of us, uh, products of the indoctrination of schooling ourselves, and therefore it, it is really difficult to to see outside of that and to decondition ourselves from all of that stuff. So yeah, lots of lots of compassion and lots of love to everybody. Sorry, and I was just thinking about like at the beginning of his article, how he's talking about us as hunter-gatherers and how we evolved as a species really to live for hundreds of thousands of years in communities where children learnt what they needed to learn through playing and through participating in life and through exploring together with family and, and wider tribe members. 
And what they were learning as through these processes was what they needed to learn in order to survive. And a huge, vast amount of knowledge they were able to acquire through learning in this way in order to survive, to learn about animals, to learn about seasons, to learn about their location, to learn about the stars, to learn about tools, you know, all of the all of the different things that they learned in a really effective way by living alongside their family. Yes. And by playing, I know you mentioned that, and he, he talks a lot about play. And there's often these amazing documentaries, aren't there, where you watch uh, a baby or a child in different cultures and maybe one that's very much more an in, indigenous still hunter-gatherer community. And then there might be one in Japan and one in America and things like that, and really seeing the differences. And my sense that I always get is this, you know, little children doing things with sticks and copying copying what they're seeing the older children and the adults doing and just so much play and you know again I see it like with the with our puppies as well I just it's such an innate thing isn't it to to learn through play and how pivotal that is and and how school leaves so little space for that so yeah I love that you're that you're talking about that beginning part of his article and how natural and innate it is to have lots and lots of time lots of space to explore to observe to experiment and to through again we've talked about this in early episodes through that embodied lived everyday natural experience that just happens mm. learning happens knowledge knowledge is acquired wisdom is accrued it's just you know we're designed to do that aren't we it's just you know, i feel joyful thinking about it yes absolutely and it just seems so Clear and and yet so often people would say to us during our homeschooling journey, well, it's not really the real world, is it? And yet, you know, if you take your kids out of school, then how will they learn how to be in the real world? And yet, when you describe it that way, and when we read Peter Gray's description of it that way, it's so clear that that is that is the real way. That is how we were designed, and that how we evolved to live and learn. And you can see why, and you can see how effective it was. And like you say, this this deep valuing of play as as a way of learning and whereas in school it's seen very separate to learning and it's seen as something that is to be to be discouraged and only allowed at certain times of the day and that it's some kind of sort of silly time wasting activity rather than the deeply profound healing learning mechanism that it is yes oh i love that and i love how he really talks about hunter-gatherers, they, and I'm going to quote him here, they did not have to work long hours, and the work they did was exciting, not dreary. Anthropologists have reported that the hunter-gatherer groups they studied did not distinguish between work and play. Essentially, all of life was understood as play. And again, I just think that is such a huge paradigm shift that, that most of us experience exactly the opposite, isn't it? And again, school, so much of that, it's like, you know, play, exactly as you said, it's some kind of frippery. And also you need to work really, 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 really hard and a little bit of play. And, and again, in our culture, even in life, isn't it? It's like, we get to play a little bit when you're really little, but then you've got some kind of preschool type thing. Then you've got school and maybe university but, or, or otherwise a job, but you know, or maybe you take a gap year. Some people take a gap year, like, you know, in England, it used to be that to know year off. But apart from that, you you work until you maybe, maybe retire and even retirement seems to be going out of fashion. Then you get to play, you know, maybe when you're 65 or 70 or 80, have a bit of time playing. So there's little gaps of time playing and maybe at the weekend, 
But actually, there's a load of work you should be doing anyway, maybe for two weeks a year on holiday. But it's just, I mean, it's so topsy-turvy, isn't it? Sucks all the joy out of life. And again, that's what I really loved about natural learning with my lovelies. For so many years when they were little, we would just be doing a lot of like things that we loved, going to the beach and hanging out and playing games and playing with the dogs and playing with friends and chatting and I I could never regret that. It was the most wonderful and wondrous of times. Absolutely. So many joyful, beautiful memories. And it's interesting, isn't it, when you when I hear you speak that, Marion, it makes me think of so often with clients that we work with, we would be recommending attachment play for supporting their children. And so often they say, oh, I'm not very good at playing or oh, it doesn't come easy to me. And of course it doesn't because we weren't allowed to do it. <laughs> When I hear you speak that out loud, that's exactly yeah. We were we were punished for playing at school often, so of course it it doesn't come naturally to so many of us. And yet, in aware parenting, again, we see the deep value of play, not just for learning, but also for healing and for creating safety and for building connection and prioritizing relationship and all of those yummy things. So there are so many things that play gives us that are denied to our children by by school. I love you said that. And that see, the doggies are like, no, we want to play. When I reread this again this morning, what it also helped me remember is actually, and it's not just us, this is many, many, many generations. If you think about for for many of us, our ancestors, and we're going to go on to share about these things, about, you know, children were treated really terribly from, you know, like the middle ages and like child labor and, and many places in the world that's still happening so for most of us, there's, there's many, many, many generations where we we didn't get to freely play. And I think often there's this, there's a bit of a an idea that perhaps in the 50s, 60s, 70s, there was this bit of time where children did get to play a bit more freely you know, when they weren't at school. And maybe there was a bit of that, but, you know, before screens came in and, <laughs> and you know, more danger, apparent dangers came in and children had less freedom again. But it really is a very, very long time for most of us that we really, uh, our ancestors got to freely play. Yes. Uh, and Peter Gray talks about the change starting around 10,000 years ago with the advent of agriculture. And and that's when there was this start to, to change in, in life. And he describes so beautifully how because food became more available, there were communities were growing, parents were having more children, and children were required to to work with their parents in the fields or, or to be caring for their siblings whilst their parents were working in this, this sort of more uh, structured food growing work. And at the same time, there started to become much more separation in societal terms between people who were the landowners and the people who were working on the land. And so there was this much greater disparity in wealth and power at the same time and how significant those two things were to happen around about the same time. Yes. I'm remembering there was a couple of years ago, I read this most amazing book and I wish I could remember it. And it's all really about how that happened in England and, and Europe and actually how, you know, like commons, the commoners that still even a few hundred years ago, there was still that sense that people could go out and they could get the firewood and they could they could actually fend for themselves and that actually land was collectively owned. And really, again, when we, when we look at that whole land ownership, I do think that's all part of this is like the way, basically the way 
that as hunter-gatherers, there's this sense of nobody owns the land and, you know, we we engage with this embodied, embedded, very deeply interconnected sense of, of being related to the land to increasing a sense of disconnection and and power over, so hence disconnected domination culture, where more and more and more it was the power, money, choice in the hands of fewer and fewer people. And basically that means that I always think of that old story, isn't it? You know, that the this is a very old story because it's even you'll hear it in the, you know, the man at work gets punished by his boss. He comes home, he punishes his wife, and the wife punishes the child, the child hits the dog. And really that's the way I see that that happens and that the more power gets in the hands of the of the few the more powerless many, many people feel and then they end up using power over and, you know, that's that's what we've seen. And I think what the way he articulates this, this is one of the processes by which that power grab has happened over thousands of years. Yes. Uh, and the more there was power in the hands of the few, the more the need was to be able to control the the masses to to behave because the, there's power in numbers really but yes. there isn't power in numbers if you control and enslave the masses which is basically what happened from the start of the agricultural change agricultural revolution through the industrial revolution through the middle ages and so on yeah that's that's basically what happened and school was such a powerful tool and i love how peter gray describes that such an important tool in this process of enslavement really exactly and um, as you're speaking i'm thinking as well is that the enslavement was much more a physical thing it was literally a physical thing and what it's become more and more over intervening is 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 it's an enslavement of consciousness, which takes us back to what we're talking about, the, the power of it. Like you inculcate children with certain things, and by the time we're adults, we we generally just see that as the way things are. So it's very, I know I said clever, the DDC, I don't even believe in the word clever, but it's just, you know, it works very effectively in what it's designed to do, which is, and I love what you said about that. Well, I don't love it, but I love how you explained it, that the, yeah, that if we actually were to realize how powerful we are, the power in the hands of the few it, it just wouldn't work it wouldn't work yeah and that word is so interesting isn't it and we'll talk about that some more because that he talked about that later and more in terms of fixing ideas into the into the minds of our children yes so he talks about these significant societal changes and how that shifted this power dynamic with increasing small, increasing small, that doesn't work, does it? With smaller and smaller numbers of people who had power, who were kings, who were lords, who were landowners at the top, and larger and larger numbers of people who were the serfs and the slaves at the bottom, and how children were often enslaved as part of that too. So... In order for that system to be sustained, he describes how beautifully the poor and the masses were taught obedience and to suppress their own will, and that rebellion against that was extremely dangerous and, and often resulted in death. And so people who who rebelled, and I mean, it's interesting us sitting here in Australia where you know so many people from Western Europe were brought here as slaves 
to build this new colony and the indigenous people were also enslaved again by a very small and very powerful elite so it's interesting to be having this conversation here it makes me think about that but it's horrendous really when you think back about how this process has gradually gone through history and each stage in history has added to that division and that separation and that disempowerment of the majority. Yes, and he shares stories with new, really horrific stories about how children were often treated like uh, that, that they were servants and slaves and were hit and all kinds of horrible things happened to them. So again, I think it's really important to hold in mind for most of us intergenerationally how much trauma there is, basically how much oppression, how much fear, how much like do as you're told because it, you know, something really terrible might happen if you don't. And I think the way he describes it is so, so powerful, isn't it? And how he then talks about from the Middle Ages, then moving to more, starting towards industrialization. So the business owners, again, wanted laborers, people who would just do what they're told. And so he says here, the labor of children was moved from fields where there had at least been sunshine, fresh air, and some opportunities to play into dark, crowded, and dirty factories. So really, and I'm actually going to quote him again because his words are so beautiful. Uh, the education of children was, to a considerable degree, a matter of squashing their willfulness in order to make them good laborers. A good child was an obedient child who suppressed his or her urge to play and explore and dutifully carried out the orders of adult masters. And again, we can still see, can't we, the, the vestiges of that still in our society today. The idea of you know, being good and being, doing what you're told still exists. It's still very common to have those kinds of beliefs. They're, they're, they've been around for a long time. They've been passed down from generation to generation. Yes. And it's such an important part of our current cultural system that uh, children's willfulness is suppressed and that they learn to obey the voices of their masters. That's still very much in evidence and a crucial part of, of the continuing culture that we are part of. Yeah. I, I was really struck. And in fact, I spoke to my daughter about it when I was reading it. One of the things that he quotes is, for example, in 1883, New legislation was brought in in the United Kingdom that forbade textile manufacturers from employing children under the age of nine and limited the maximum weekly working hours to 48 hours for 10 to 12-year-olds and 69 for 13 to 17-year-olds. And it's just unbelievable, isn't it? Just extraordinary that before that, if you were under nine and you were working in a factory, in a textile factory, that's fine, totally fine. And even after that, it's considered to be progress that 13-year-olds are allowed to work for 69 hours a week in these factories. It's just horrific. And I'm laughing because it's just, it's horrific to even think about, isn't it? And again, to actually really think about that, of course, in many countries in the world, these kinds of things are still happening. Yeah. It's still part of that industrialization process. Yeah. And in, yeah. in fact, our, our current culture depends on depends that. Depends on it, exactly. <laughs> our capitalist system requires us to have places in the world where children of those ages are working those kind of hours and more. Yes. Yeah. So oppression is very much still alive and kicking, isn't it? Yeah. And I think, again, I really want to come back to yeah, anyone listening who is practicing these different ways, so we're painting a natural land together, to really understand the the tide that we are moving against. And again, that many, 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 many years and the many generations before us 
that we are uh, just again, of course, this is going to be hard, not only because of all of that history, but because we still live in a culture that's based on many of these ways of thinking and responding to children. Mm. Yes. So he then goes on to talk about some of the changes in that happened in the 19th century, really, and how that impacted education. Could we, could we rewind a little bit before that? When he, yes. when he talks about in, in America and the, and the Puritans, would you would you be happy for us to say a little bit about that as well? Yeah, yeah. Because I think, again, I think that's really important that, that the next part was Protestant religions, a lot of that impetus for universal education, he says. And actually that, so Luther said that each person must learn to read and must also learn the script, that the scriptures represent absolute truths. So wanting children to read was related to, again, wanting to inculcate them with these particular religious beliefs. So uh, again, to really understand there's not, the idea of reading being really important is not, it doesn't have, it doesn't just exist in a vacuum. There's really important reasons historically why it was so deeply valued. Yes. And it was such a powerful part of that. The, the rise and spread of that religion to have compulsory education also spreading widely at the same time. And I love you that he uses, and you've just used that word as well, inculcation. And I actually looked it up because I thought, I love that word. I'd really love to know exactly what it means. And, and what it means is the process of fixing beliefs or ideas in someone's mind, especially by repeating them often, the process of implanting certain truths and ways of thinking into children's minds. So yeah, we can really see the power of that. Yeah. yeah, and how schools, that's one of the things they do, isn't it? And the media, of course, now is, um, back then it was the Bible, now the media does a really uh, yeah, very effective job at repeating things over and over again till we believe them. Yes. And so again, he, I love to, yeah, Karen. <laughs> so he talks about how as like, industry progressed and the industrialization process progressed, and production became more automated, there was less need for child labor. And so, and the child labor declined in, in some parts in the world. And, and these ideas then began to, began to spread that childhood should be a time of, of learning and that schools were developed as, as a place where learning would happen. And it, this practice of universal compulsory public education was started in in Europe from the early 16th century and grew towards the 19th century. And as you said, much of that came from the Protestant religions and where schools were promoted as it was like a Christian duty to save our souls from eternal damnation by learning the scriptures, as you said. So yes, we can see how the schooling was was developed and changed in that period to become much more universal and with this very specific aim in mind to be inculcating our children. This is, is this process, isn't it, that he's mapping of, of oppression, but that it kind of morphs. So every time the culture changes, it morphs to still be able to do its oppressing, but in a different form. So it's, again, the, you know, it's doing what it's designed to do. It's very, I keep wanting to say clever, even though I don't really like that word, but, you know, the the way the inculcation happens and the way it follows the cultural change is really powerful. Yeah. Yes, it's a very sophisticated and very effective way, isn't oh, it, really? Yeah, there you yeah. go. That's what I'd like to say, sophisticated and effective. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and clever. 
it was interesting as well, isn't it? He talked about Massachusetts. That was the first colony to mandate schooling and that, that they really clearly said the reason for doing this, the reason we're mandating schooling is to turn children into good Puritans mm. and that the New England primer that they read from was all about basically all about good and evil and all of that stuff. Mm. Yeah. And it's so clear as well how what a powerful way it was seen to be to indoctrinate certain characteristics in children that would then make them good workers in terms of being punctual and getting to places on time and doing what you're told, following directions and being willing to sit through long hours, relentlessly long hours of tedium and boredom so that when you you were then willing to do that as an adult in the, in the workplace too. And I thought it was very interesting what he talked about as well in terms of that powerful indoctrination for uh, patriotism to create this dedication to your country, to be able to produce soldiers of the future who were willing to go off and fight and potentially die and to kill in order to be saving the, the motherland. Yes, and that one thing he doesn't really mention in here is colonization. I mean, he kind of talks in a way related to it, but he doesn't really talk about it. And of course, so much of that gets passed around the colonizers come into another country and they and children go to school and they they learn the new language and often it was English but you know Spanish and what's the other one Portuguese the French Portuguese, <laughs> French and the other one in Europe I can't remember but yeah so that again really powerful way you take over a, a country and then you teach the the children of that country the the ways that you want them the things that you want them to believe the the religious ideas that you want them to to believe to be true again very effective mm. and we see that now don't we in terms of the globalization of education that's going on and we'll probably do another podcast about that one won't we falling <laughs> yes. the world yes. love, love yep. the movie yeah yep. <laughs> And the other thing he talks about in the same stage of the article is, is to talk about the power of punishments and, and how that became such an intrinsic part of, of the educational process and and still is in so many places. And as you say, you've, even in progressive schools where, I mean, when I was at school, there was still corporal punishment. The boys were beaten. Girls were brutalized psychologically. But even now, as you say, in progressive schools, there is still a large degree of, of punishment and where and play is still uh, discouraged if not if not forbidden so yes it's it's still in evidence isn't it yes even if it's in subtle ways because basically of course if you've got 25 to 30 children and one or two adults I mean really to get all the children to be doing the same thing at the same time you're going to be needing to use some degree or other of coercion or force to get them to do that Yes, particularly when we, you're, what you're getting them to do is so far away from what they're naturally evolved and designed to be spending their time doing. Of course, they take a lot, a lot of power and manipulation and coercion to control. It's exhausting, isn't it? I mean, my heart goes out to teachers who, who are, you know, and again, we really want to acknowledge, we aim to say this in every podcast, and it's to acknowledge all the many, many teachers and many people involved in schools who, who are doing things out of the love of, of their love for children, their desire to help and desire to contribute, the desire to bring about change and how hard it is to bring about change when still, again, we've got that history and yes, things may morph, but we are still looking at basically how can we make children do what we want them to do and grow up to continue the existing paradigm. Yeah. And I think it's interesting how, 
he describes as well that the amount of time that children were spending at school initially was much less than it is uh, throughout the 19th and 20th century that grew and so did that the subjects that our children were taught in those schooling hours. And now when you think about it, I mean, the, the school hours are, are basically work hours, aren't they? That's basically the same amount of time that um, so many parents spend working, children are spending in school. And, you know, the, the curriculum that so many people think of as being the epitome of what we need to learn and the 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 what we should all be aspiring to and that even when we're not at school and homeschooling we should still be following the curriculum and that's what's expected of us because that is that is what learning is and yet really it's just about a continuation of this same thing which was about teaching and indoctrinating our children into what is of benefit to our culture for them to learn but not really anything to do with what what is about the survival of our culture or about passion or about joy or about interest it almost seems to me that the the system again because if we think of it almost in, in an energetic sense that it's continuing its origins that it's basically trying to make it so that children have as little time to play as possible (laughs) because when play does lead to free play true free play doesn't it leads to creativity it leads to thinking out of box it leads to uniqueness and and all of the things that actually create a a change in the system system doesn't want to change it doesn't want a lot of that (laughs) free thinking and creative thinking happening Mm. But but I always see it as like life is more powerful. So it's like there's always, you know, children always find a way. And, you know, whatever these systems are doing, they always find a way to to be creative. And I think about like the little daisy growing out of the concrete, you know, the ways that children will find to say no to the system, basically. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. When you were talking there, I had <laughs> this feeling it's it's almost as if we're trying to tell our children to get used to having a joyless life. <laughs> and oh. I love what you say about the power of the human spirit and the resilience of the human spirit, that as you say, our children are able to still find these ways to stay connected to their joyful, playful, natural state. Yes, it can't be beaten out of them. Although, you know, as you said, and we experience that so often, I know it for myself that because of this history, not only for ourselves, but intergenerationally, for many of us, actually, the kind of, you know, attachment play, basically creative play, learning play often is harder. Often many people find it hard to play. And isn't that a, isn't that like a crime against the human spirit? I remember when in my early days of aware parenting and I was sharing about attachment play and a friend, an old, old friend said, that she felt really sad that actually that I was needing to share these things or that the people need, you know, that we need to be sharing this information because it is so inherent and most of us have lost connection with it. And, and actually, isn't that sad that that mm. is the case? Yeah. I mean, in a way, wouldn't it be great when we're we're all <laughs> we're all put out of a job? No, there'll be more there'll be more wonderful things to us to contribute that actually all because the, they're all innate, all of these things that that's, I think, why we love aware parenting and natural learning, aren't they? Because they're all ways that we're aiming to support ourselves to return to actually what hunter-gatherers were just doing. Mm. Yeah. Yes. And it's interesting, isn't it, that it's sold to us as development 
And yet really it's taking us further away, further and further away from our true nature and our true natural way to be living. Yeah. So is there anything else you want to say about the history? I'd love to talk about what does he say? Do you know what I, I mean? It's harsh, isn't it? Painful. But what does he say here? Like children whose drive to play is so strong that they can't sit still for lessons are no longer beaten. Instead, they are medicated. And so again, like, you know, again, how is the effectiveness, the cleverness of this system is that, okay, right, beliefs are changing, people are waking up to actually that, you know, hitting a child is not a helpful thing for them. How can we change it so that it still looks like it's a helpful, loving thing? Okay, we'll find some other way of doing that. The constantly it changes and morphs, but it still at its core has the sense that, yeah, there's something wrong with the child who isn't able to sit still in a classroom for many hours a day rather than rather than there's something up with the uh, with the whole system that the children are bringing to light. They're the canaries in the coal mine. They're actually helping us see things rather than there's something wrong with them. Yes. Yes. Was and anything else you wanted to say? Uh, what else have we got? There's all these notes here. I, I really recommend everyone go and, go yeah. and read it. And I think the other thing yeah, I want to recircle back around to is that what he's really emphasizing is that school, and I'm going to quote him again, school today is the place where all children learn the distinction that hunter-gatherers never knew, the distinction between work and play. The teacher says you must do your work and then you can play. Again, I just think it's it really is a, a crime because, you know, when you know, I know for myself as the more I've unvelcroed those things and actually really seen work and play as the same thing it it really it's a completely life-changing experience to really go from that paradigm which most of us grew up with is you know you have to do this and you have to do that and you have to eat even like you know you have to eat your vegetables before you have the pudding like we used to for quite a few years um we used to go out to this restaurant that we or cafe that we all loved when my kids were little and with their dad and we'd eat the, the the chocolate pudding that we all loved first and it was so fun and you know that that actually it really can be different that we can do things that we can enjoy we can really change that around I think that radically changes our whole experience of life and and as we live that more and more and support our children to live that like everything changes yes there's just such immense power and the ripple effect of that is is just impossible to really imagine when we just take our children out of the system and some of those little ripples are little things like eating pudding first, and some of them are really bigger things around, you know, what we're willing and not willing to do, and what our children are willing and not willing to do too. But it's just really profound, yeah, yeah. Yes, and what I think it does is reconnects us to like the yes, the little daisies can come out of the concrete. Yes, we are incredibly, you know, the human spirit is amazing, and we'll we'll do amazing things. And yet, imagine the human spirit with really deeply supportive environments, supported to be the creative amazing beings that we are and particularly right now where I just think there is there's so much need isn't there for creative thinking out of the box out of the paradigm thinking to bring about radical changes in in how we live and how we relate to each other and and you know that all that's possible and how much more wonderful if we really support children to be a part of that you know awakening process Mm, yes indeed (laughs) yes 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 and 
I, I mean, again, we want to say that there are lots of schools that are doing amazing things and there are like Lale's beautiful school and there are lots of other schools and lots of beautiful teachers who are really, really amazingly motivated to support children. And there are also, of course, situations where children are, are a great benefit when they're in, at school and they're taken away from their home situation that's not not ideal or, you know, there are lots of circumstances where schools are are wonderful and really, really important and where there are lots of people who are doing wonderful and important things to make that so. And at the same time, the basic premises around the nature of learning are have remained unchanged now from, from back in, in the past in history too. And that that is that I love how he describes that learning is hard work and that it's something that children must be forced to do. It's not something that's going to happen naturally through children's own choice of activities and that the specific lessons that children need to learn are determined by educators and professionals, not by children themselves. So in, in a lot of ways, education today is still that same process of inculcation by the powers of our society and our culture. Yes. So powerful, isn't it, what he says? And no, I, and I guess what I tend to think as well is that each of us is here and we have a different calling. So for some people, it's going to be really uh, bringing about changes within schools. And I, I know for myself, I imagine for you too, Joss, is that we really want to change the whole paradigm. And, and of course, part of that means if we're going to move away from schooling altogether and going to have actually return more to a, a way that's a fit for us as human beings, that means actually adults also not going to nine to five jobs. It's really asks of us and invites us to change the whole system because you cannot just say, okay, let's, no, let's get rid of schools. Everything else in the culture would need to change too. And I think, you know, that's for me personally, that's why that's why I want to shift. I want to shift the whole paradigm, not just I don't want to move around the furniture. Yes, absolutely. No, me too. And it's so much easier for us, isn't it, to be free of school if we're aware of this information about why schools are there. If we believe that schools are the best place for our children to go to learn and that teachers are the best people to be teaching them and that learning is the product of teaching and we need a curriculum, then it's very difficult to step outside of that. If, however, we see that schools are a product of history and that learning is a product of living... <laughs> and that children need our help to facilitate their learning, but they don't need to be indoctrinated or taught in order to learn, then it allows this paradigm shift to happen. So yeah, absolutely. I'm with you. <laughs> Joss, what you just said there, oh my gosh, I'm going to, I want to uh, quote you that, that last bit that you just said there, I thought was so beautiful. Yes, 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 yes to all of that. Thank you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> So, yeah, I think we would definitely be inviting anyone who is called to to go and read this article. It's not a long one. And his book, Free to Learn, is amazing. And I've never writes, read it, so I want to read his book. <laughs> yes. And he writes beautifully on um, the Psychology Today uh, magazine, which is also on Facebook. So there's lots of places to go and find out more about him. I would love us to ask him if he wanted to come on our podcast and be He's interviewed by us. Oh, well, I was thinking of that earlier, and I thought I won't say it out loud because I don't oh. just like that. But I'm no, I'm glad you did because I already thought that too, <laughs> wouldn't it? Like, yeah. So grateful to waste on. And again, it's like I actually really feel touched. Is it's by people like he may not. I'm sure he doesn't know. He doesn't know. Just it's just us two. The the effect that this article in his book has had on us and think about all the people. So, you know, anybody who's thinking 
and un- and finding ways to understand these kinds of things and sharing about them that the the ripple on effect and how that supports others to really see things i think is so amazing so mm. thank you again to him and anyone who's sharing about these things to help people see to help that those veils drop away yes mm. Should we share about, well, our, our offerings, but also should we share first about our upcoming Aware Parenting Natural Learning Community Year 2? Yeah, It's beginning very soon, if you're listening to this on, in January 2023. Yes. yes, so our beautiful community, Aware Parenting and Natural Learning Community, will be starting again. And it's such a lovely space, and we go in there and we talk about all different things related to all things to do with natural learning and aware parenting. And there are lots of people who are part of the community this year who want to stay in the community and come back. And then there's lots of people who've contacted us during the course of the year and wanting to join. So we only open the doors at the beginning of the year, uh, which is interesting, isn't it? That's a very sort of, that's quite, maybe that's a throwback to the schooling, (laughs) but Anyway, it's just a, a really beautiful space and we have different focuses for each month and we have Facebook Lives and Q&As and we have Zoom calls in there and we share lots of resources in there too. And I think this year we, we're going to change it around a bit and we're going to have slightly different structure but similar. And we have a time zone call that is suitable for sort of Australian-ish time and we've got a time zone call that is suitable for sort of European american time. So we try to encourage people to join from all over the world and we've had members from all kinds of interesting countries in the last year so but yeah really looking forward to it and i think our our understanding and our clarity about it grows each time we talk about things doesn't it and so i think it's so beautiful to be sharing that with other people who are inspiring and 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 the community the sense of community is so important in this process to have that connection to others who are on the same path to to help the trust and to feel part of part of a bigger community yes and we're going to put more a bit more focus or more focus this year as well on uh, supporting participants if they want to and to the extent that they want to to be participating in the next level of their healing from school traumas we've really it's one thing that we really became much more aware of last year of how significant that is for most of us and how often, as you were talking about in this episode, how often we tend to be directed towards our own uh, family of origin and often not so much to actually the the stresses, mini traumas and trauma that we experienced in the school environment. Mm. Yeah, yes, and a big focus too on the deconditioning some of lots of which we've been talking about today as well but yeah that's a big part of it as well yes yeah i'm so looking forward to that me too, <laughs> me too. do you want to share about your other offerings as well joss yeah so uh what else am i doing so i've got a new round of my web parenting teenagers course that will be coming at some stage i'm going to set the dates i think in um late February, early March. And that was really the last live round was so beautiful. I really loved that. So I'm looking forward to doing that. And I'm working on a new offering to support parents to come together, um, whether they are still in a partnership and married or whether they're separated to be like more on the same page in their parenting. And so that's uh, that will be ready at some stage whenever it's ready. <laughs> So, yeah, that's really my offerings. What about you, Marion? 
Uh, I do want to say as well, you do one-on-one sessions and you oh, yeah. do offer that for a lot of parents who do a combined aware parenting and natural learning, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, me, I'm really enjoying doing, uh, I've added this new thing, which is a month with me of kind of like immersive support. So uh, I've got four spaces available for February for anyone who would like that. And I'm going to be doing a next live round of the Aware Parenting with Marion course and also the next this year's intake of the instructor mentoring course as well so that's all coming up so wonderful I mean this too I I love all that we do don't you (laughs) yes indeed Mm, so as always we are sending you so much love for whatever feelings came up for you listening to this so normal and natural so if you did have feelings coming up and you know, again if you have any topics that you'd like us to talk about or questions we would love to hear and we're so here to support you in in this process wherever you are in this process and you know whatever you're doing we just send you love and appreciation and it's big it's big this work <laughs> yes absolutely and we would also love we're very willing for this year to be more and more people to be understanding this kind of information and receiving this information. So if you're enjoying listening, please share it and uh, let us know, uh, yeah, as you say, what you'd like us to talk about. And we would we would really love this to be more, more widely understood. Big yes to that. <laughs> Thank you so much and so much love to you. We have really enjoyed talking to you today and we hope that you enjoyed the episode too. We are sending you love however you feel after hearing this information. To find out more about Marion's work, you can go to marionrose.net and for Joss's website, it is awareparenting.com.au. We wish you much love and connection on your aware parenting and natural learning adventures. Mm